Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring the service to you, wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13 in the New Testament? Babrita Chadashah, at the lower or the back part of the New Testament. That's where we're going to be today, and we'll also show those verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about the echoes of Hebrews. I want to call to your memory that we've been going through the book of Hebrews for the past several weeks. You recall it was written to the Jewish people, to the Jewish believers. It was written to the people with a Jewish mindset. Now the Jewish people are highly intelligent people, as you know if you're in Israel. And some of you are going like, yeah, that's me. No, come on now. Mercy. The mercy of God gives you that wisdom. But in the book of Hebrews, it was written to the Jewish mind so that you could think about the things that the gospel is saying, so that you could think about the things that the Tanakh, the the Old Testament and the New Testament, are saying to the Jewish believer, to the Jewish person who needs to know what this Messiah was supposed to be when he was supposed to come, what he was supposed to do. You see, today in Israel and around the world, many of the Jewish people have the wrong idea about the Messiah. They felt like, oh, he's just going to be another man. He'll be a good man. He'll bring peace in his time. But they're thinking about political peace. They're thinking about peace from war. They're thinking about peace and being able to live in the land without their neighbors attacking them all the time. And that's the peace that they're thinking about. Well, you know, listen, if you're Jewish, I understand. We all want that. But God's thinking about something far, far greater. He's thinking about a peace deep inside your heart so that no matter what the situation is, you'll have peace. No matter how bad the storms are that are around you, nothing will be able to take your peace away. That's because the problem that the Messiah fixed was far bigger than the problem you're thinking He would fix. He didn't come just to fix political problems. Politicians can try to do that. He didn't come just to set boundaries of nations other guys do that. Now, God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people. There's no doubt. He set the boundaries then of that. But He's not so much concerned with the geopolitical state of the world today. He's not so much concerned with what the President of the United States or the Congress or the Senate or the Knesset in Israel, He's not so concerned about every little thing that they say. He's concerned that you will understand the most important thing, and that is how to have everlasting life, how to know that you're going to heaven at the end of your life on earth. Did you hear what I said? That's pretty important, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about these lives that we live now, might be 60, 70, 80, 100 years, or some even higher than 100, but still, that's just a drop in the bucket compared to everlasting life. You see, it's that first part of everlasting, 
that sounds so good, everlasting. It lasts forever. I like the sound of that, life that lasts forever. And when it really comes right down to it in our hearts, the thing that's most important to us is being around, is living. Well, if living in the physical body is important, how much more important is living forever? Not for just the 70, 80, or 100 years that you have like here in this life, but forever, everlasting life. And so the Messiah not only came to fix the peace in your heart, but to give you everlasting life. No ordinary man can guarantee you that. That required the approval of God. That required God to be the Messiah. He's the only one that can give that sort of a blessing. And that's why He was the Messiah. He Himself became our Messiah. He Himself became our Savior. You go, well, wait a minute. We Jewish people don't need a Savior. You know, we're working our way. We're doing our best. And we're trying to earn righteousness before God. And, you know, you figure if long, as long as you get a lot of the things right, then some of the things that are wrong, God will just forget. That sounds good, doesn't it? And in a democratic society, you would say, well, if you got 51% of your life good, then you're guaranteed that you can enter in heaven. But you don't understand the Word of God. You see, God's kingdom is not a democracy. It's a theocracy where He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And guess what? The Bible says God is perfect. And it also says that He will judge sin of any kind. And it says that the punishment for sin is death. You're separated from God. In other words, you can't be in the forever kingdom of heaven if you have sin in your life. That's why it's so important to have that sin atoned for, and only a Savior can do that. But as we covered in the book of Hebrews, since we're remembering the journey we just made, we talked about how not just any person can be the Savior. Because before He could atone for the sins of mankind and completely remove all our sins, so that we appear guiltless before God, before that person can do that, he himself must have no sin. That's why Pesach, Passover, is a picture of what would happen when the Messiah came. And God said, when you take the blemish-free lamb and then you kill it on the night of the Passover and you put the blood of the spotless, the blemish-free lamb, on the doorpost of your heart, he said on the doorpost of your house at that time, and God said, when I see that blood of the blemish-free sacrifice, of the perfect, of the spotless sacrifice, I will pass over that house in judgment. Now, you know I'm Jewish, and I want to speak to you, Jewish heart to Jewish heart. Look me in the eyes, just like your mother said, you look at who's talking to you. That's what she told me, too. But anyway, I want to tell you that He wants to forgive your sins. And you're thinking that, well, it's because we're special people. We're Jewish. That's why He didn't judge our sins. No, that's not what God said. 
Listen up. He said, and when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of your house, then I will pass over that house in judgment. And that, my brother and sister, is why it's called Passover. You get it? Pesach, Passover. That's why it's called Passover. He has to see the blood of the blemish-free lamb before he will pass over that house in judgment. That's what he said right there in the, in the Torah. You can read it for yourself. In the books that Moses wrote there, you can read it in the Torah. He says, when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of your house, then I will pass over that house in judgment. I have a question for you. What do you suppose would have happened if one of the Jewish families said, well, I'm not going to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of my house? Then when God, that night, went forward to destroy the firstborn in all of Egypt, He would not have seen the blood on the doorposts of that house because of that person's stubbornness and not obeying what God said. And because he did not believe what God said, God would not see the blood on the doorpost of that house, and He would not pass over that house in judgment, but He would enter in that house, and they would be judged for their sins in the same way that the households of Egypt were judged that particular night. You see, it's not because of your lineage that you're saved. It's because of God's mercy. Are you a special people, my Jewish brothers and sisters? Yes, you are. Because to you, the Messiah came first. To you, the Torah, the law of God was given. And because of you, the rest of the world now has the Bible to read. Thank you very much. And because of you who have kept it faithfully down through the centuries, making sure that it was transcribed accurately, century after century, and if there was ever even one tiny mistake, it would be taken and put away and not used. That's how important God's Word is. So, of course, it's important that we obey God's Word. And God was saying, He was telling us in the story of Passover, He was showing us that this is what's going to happen when He sends forth His Messiah in the future. And then that time came, God became a man. God became the Messiah. We studied this. We talked about it. Remember? These are the echoes of Hebrews. The echoes of things that we've already studied should be now bouncing around in your head, bouncing around in your heart as you remember them. And as they do, as these echoes bounce back and forth, you need to think on those. You need to consider those things that we've talked about. Don't be like someone just looking in the mirror and you see some dirt on your face and you turn and walk away and, and go, well, it must be okay now because I don't see any more dirt. That's because you're not in front of the mirror anymore, you see. God's Word is a mirror that shows you what needs to be changed in your heart. Don't just walk away from it and be in denial about what you saw in that mirror. Use what you saw in that mirror to let it change your life and clean up everything. God will be merciful to you. God had to be the blemish-free sacrifice. And we've covered many, many, many times before. It was because it says two times in the book of Psalms and once in the book of Isaiah, 
Yeshayahu Hanavi, Isaiah the prophet, it says that he looked all over the earth, that his eyes went all over the earth to try to find any man who was righteous, any that sought him, any that wanted to do good all of the time. And it said in the end of each one of those verses, the same thing. It says, he found none, no, not one. You see, you and I think of a good man as someone who tries to do good, but he's got some sins. Yeah, just like we all have. But compared to the rest of us, he's a pretty good man. Well, that's not good enough for God because God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect in justice. And he's committed himself to judging sin. He said in Ezekiel, his Navi, he said in Ezekiel, the soul that sins, it shall die. Now he's talking about something that came up that was a slightly different subject, but nonetheless, God himself said, the soul that sins, it shall die. And that carries over in every context as well. It's very simple to understand. There's nothing that you can misinterpret about it. The soul that sins, it shall die. So that says right there, we need a Savior. And Passover showed us we need a spotless Savior. Not just any person could do. It had to be a person without sin. But yet God's own word in the, in the Tanakh in Psalms and Isaiah the prophet said that there was no such person. Of course. So God himself became a man and lived his life according to his law, keeping his rules every moment of every day of every year of his life so that he would qualify to be the Savior for your sins. It's just who he is anyway. He's perfect in righteousness. He doesn't sin. But he allowed himself to inhabit the body of a human being. And God became a man and dwelt among us. Came to die on a cross of wood, it says, and yet made the hill on which it stood. It is the greatest love story ever told. The Bible showed in the book of Hebrews that all had sinned and were disqualified from being that sacrifice of sin for sin. It showed that only one with no sin could enter the real tabernacle in heaven. Remember as we covered that. And that they could only, one with no sin would be the only one who could enter that real tabernacle in heaven because God told Moses to make it after the pattern of the one that he showed him on the mountain. And that's what Moses used to make the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so the real tabernacle, that pattern that it was, the one that it was modeled after in heaven, God allowed Moses to see. Well, the real Messiah with no sin could enter the kingdom of heaven. If he had no sin, there was nothing to keep him out of heaven, you see, because God's justice and judgment wouldn't leap out upon him and destroy the sin in his life, taking him with it, you see. And so God allowed Messiah to enter heaven because he had lived this life with no sin. And when he did, he went into the heavenly tabernacle that Moses had seen on the mount, and he made the atonement once and for all, for all sins, for all mankind. It showed the forever high priest in the book of Hebrews, the forever sacrifice. The forever high priest, because remember in the Tanakh it had said about this Messiah when he comes, that he would be the high priest forever. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, 
which you say in English as Melchizedek. And so he says, you would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How can that be? Every normal man lives just these number of years that he has here on this life, and then he passes away, and someone else replaces him. But this particular man in the book of Psalms, God himself says to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you Hebrew speakers know what Melchi, my king, Tzedek, righteousness, my king of righteousness. You know what that name means, you see. And God says, you, you high priest that I'm talking to, this Mashiach, this Messiah, are going to be a high priest forever. Oh, simple question. I got to ask you, don't you turn away. Don't, you got to pay attention to this now. If he's going to live forever, how does that work? How can a person live forever? How can you say that the Messiah is just going to be a normal man when the one that God says is going to be the Messiah? God promises that he's going to live forever. Nothing normal about that, you see. We don't have his body. It was raised from the dead. They haven't found it. Oh, there's been people that said they did over the years, over the hundreds and hundreds and two thousand years later. And... They're eventually proven to be liars and to be mistaken. And still today, his life, Jesus, the Messiah, the most famous Jewish man who ever lived, the most famous, the most famous Jewish man who ever lived, his life split time itself into two different parts. He changed civilization of the whole earth more than any man who's ever lived. He is the greatest, the most famous Jewish person who ever lived. Contrast that to any other rabbi, any other sage. They all lived, they all died. This one lives forever. This one changed the world. Why is he not a candidate in your mind for being the Messiah? Oh, he is. He's the Mashiach. And his life fulfilled over 300 prophecies of the Tanakh in his short life, in his death, in his resurrection, these things. And still the remaining prophecies to be fulfilled talk about when he will return again. And you go, well, how can he return again? He's dead. That's what I'm saying. He's not dead. Death could not hold him. He had no sin in his life. He kept the law, the Torah at all times. And death is the result of sinning. Since he had no sin, death has no power over him. It has no authority over him. It cannot hold him in the grave. And so God raised him from the dead, and now he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, waiting for the Father to tell him when it's time to come back and get those who believe on him and to come back and set up the kingdom of God on earth. This is the Messiah we're talking about. No simple man here. God himself was that Messiah. God himself was that Savior. He was the forever high priest, making the forever sacrifice, entering the forever kingdom into the forever tabernacle in heaven to forever forgive those who had been without hope to all who believe on him to give them everlasting life that they could live forever.
with God in heaven. It was God's forever plan. And we studied this in the book of Hebrews. Now, these are the things that we learn in God's Word by going through the book of Hebrews. And now it's time to listen to those echoes going back and forth in your heart. The echoes of the things that we've learned as we think on them and firmly plant them in our hearts to where those seeds can grow up and change our lives forever for the better. It's time to listen to those words in our hearts as they remind us of God's love, as they teach us about Jesus the Messiah, as they echo through our heart, God's word may be planted deep in our lives. And now the writer of the book of Hebrews is closing the letter to the Hebrews with a few final reminders and words of encouragement. And that's what the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, is all about. Let's take a look at it together. It says in Hebrews 13, verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing this, some have actually unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are also in the body. These first three verses talk about the most important things. Let brotherly love continue. Jesus said, this is my command, that you love one another. Not as the world loves, but love one another, even your enemies. Be patient, be forgiving to one another. Love each other as I have loved you, he said. Greater love has no man than this. Then he lay down his life for his friends. So he starts out Hebrews 13, 1, where he's about to say goodbye to the Hebrew believers there in this very, very important letter to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish brothers and sisters there. And he says, out of all the things that he could say, he starts out by saying, let brotherly love continue. You want to be a godly person? Love others. You want to do the things of God? Love others others. Be like your heavenly Father. Don't just love those that love you. Love those who don't love you. Love those who curse you. Not only those who bless you, but love those who do wrong to you. Because your heavenly Father causes His reign to fall on the just and the unjust. Love like your heavenly Father loves. In a way of speaking, in a metaphor, you have his DNA, spiritual DNA, if you want. Uh, you know, of course, we're talking not literally, but as a metaphor, you, it's like you have his spiritual DNA. When you believe on his son, you become a child of God. You're born into the family of God. You're born into the kingdom of God. And you have his spiritual DNA. That means you have the capacity to think on the things that he thinks about. You have the ability to do the things that He's asking you to do because of His indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. Then verse 2. Interesting verse, verse 2. You hear a lot of people talking about this verse. It says, Do not forget to entertain strangers. For, some, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. What He's saying is, is that some of these people that were taken care of by you just being a hospitable person, 
by you showing hospitality, you never know if they're just normal people or if they're angels. Remember Lot. He received the angels into his house in the middle of Sodom there. And he brought the angels in. Well, later they were the ones who took him out and his family out so that they wouldn't be destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah and the other wicked cities of the plains that were doing all these horrible, horrible sins. It says, don't forget to be kind to strangers. Uh, they might not look like angels. You might not notice any halos hanging above their heads. You might not notice any wings under their shirts, under the tops that they're wearing, under those coats. But they might be angels. And God says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing this, some have entertained angels without even knowing it. Then verse 3 says, Remember the prisoners as chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourself are also in the body. And what he was saying was, remember to pray for the prisoners. Remember to take care of them. Remember to gather together and pray for them and to have these times where you are coming before God's throne and asking on their behalf for those who are locked away and those who are mistreated. And then he says, you know what it's like. You're also experiencing these things since you yourself are also in the body. You see, because they were being persecuted as well. Especially the Jewish believers were being persecuted. And then verse 4, it goes on. It says, marriage is honorable in all. And the bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I don't have to fear. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So he goes into verse 4 and he's just talking about these things that come to mind. That he's about to now close this letter to the Hebrew believers. And he's reminding them of things that are important in life. The first verse, he said, love the brothers. Then he said, show hospitality. You might be entertaining angels without even knowing it. And then in verse 4, he says, by the way, let's talk about marriage. Marriage is honorable in all marriage. And the bed is undefiled. Whatever happens sexually in that bed in marriage is okay to God. I mean, I'm, we're not talking about uh, abusing people and things like that. We're talking about honorable conduct between two married people. And God is saying, I honor that. Marriage was instituted by God. But then look what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, if you think about how that sentence is worded, it's basically saying marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled. But anyone who does his sex outside of marriage, yes, I know that this is a, an unpopular message in today's world, but save yourself for your husbands. Save yourselves for your wives, husbands. Save yourselves for marriage and God will bless it. And he says, but fornicators and adulterers, those are the ones who do sex outside of marriage. It says, God will judge them. 
Then verse 5 continues. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Oh, this is a big one. You know, sometimes we see that word covetousness and we go, well, that's, that sounds like a sophisticated, complex word. I'm, I'm not too sure what that means, so I just hope that I don't do it. It's actually a pretty simple meaning. So let your conduct, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. You see, the last part of that sentence is actually a clue to what the first part means. If you look up the word, you'll find out that when you covet somebody, when you covet something that someone else has, you are desiring what they have. And it's almost like theft. You're desiring what they have, and it's not yours. But you're wishing you had it. Now, sometimes when you wish that you had something that someone else has, you try to justify yourself. You try to feel good about why you want what they have. And sometimes evil thoughts arise in your mind. You may be saying as you're looking over at that thing that that other person has, that that friend has, that neighbor has, someone else has something that you want. You're looking at that and you're going like, I live a better life than they do. They don't deserve that. I should have had that. You see, why don't you let God judge yourself? You judge yourself very leniently. In fact, we're all pretty hypocritical about how we judge other people when we look at them. And we could never survive that kind of judgment if we'd look in the mirror instead. But we don't seem to look at our own conduct much. We don't seem to pay too much attention to our own heart so many times. And when you look at that other person, you say, they don't deserve that. I deserve that. I've done much more than they have. What did they do to earn that? And you start desiring what they have. And you start becoming jealous of them. And jealousy is not a fruit of the Spirit. Jealousy is a work of the flesh. And so he says in the last part of verse 5, be content with such things as you have. In other words, be content with what you have. Hmm. Why would you want to go through life all stressed about what you don't have? Always being trying to find something new or how to increase your wealth and your possessions. Don't you realize this whole life is just a temporary life? You build up all these treasures and you can't take them with you. You can't take them with you. I heard the story about a, a man in Texas. He was a very rich oil man. And, and when he died and buried, they found out in his will, he asked people to bury him in his Cadillac convertible, in his big, luxurious Cadillac convertible. He was a Texas oil man, and he, they buried him with his Texas cowboy hat on. On the front of his gig, big Cadillac, there were two big longhorn steers, or steer longhorns on the front, like some of the people would put on there. And they had a large crane, and they were lowering it to the ground. And one of the people who worked for the cemetery at that time, they saw all of this, this beautiful car, this man sitting up in there with his hat on, his arm on the window like that, looking out, with those long horns on there. And that grave digger said, man, that's living. <laughs> that's not living. The guy was dead. But you see, you can't take it with you. That's what I'm saying. So be content with the things that you have. For he himself, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, it's enough to know that God is with you. 
That's the most important thing. Verse 6 then goes on. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I won't fear. What can man do to me? And verse 7 then talks about remembering those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith you follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ, it says in verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it's good that the heart be established by grace. Grace is a simple concept. You're forgiven, live free, love God for the love He's shown you. Love others because you were forgiven, so forgive others. You were loved by God, so love others with His love and love Him in return. It says, For it's good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. These verses in verse 7 through 9, it says, Remember those who rule over you, who've spoken God's word to you, whose faith follow. Now you have pastors. You have people who have shared God's word with you. People who have patiently come alongside of you to try to teach you God's Word so that you can have peace in your life, so that you can have a hope of everlasting life after this life, so that you can know that you're going to heaven because you're a believer in Jesus the Messiah. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the Mashiach and He is Adon. He is Adonai. God became a man and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory is of, only, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son of God, when you believe on Him, you have somebody to thank. Someone told you about Him. Someone taught you about Him. Someone patiently took time so that you could grow, raising you as if you were a little child to where you matured and now you're able to share and teach with others. It says, honor those people that are over you, those people who have spoken God's word to you. Follow their faith. Look at their life. Look at the conduct. Look at the outcome of their conduct in life. They've become righteous people. People, faults, no doubt. Still they have faults. Still they have problems. But we respect them. They're trying. They're trying to do the best they can. They're patiently going through life. and They have a peace deep inside that we can't explain. As they go through problems, they don't come apart and blow up like we do, you know, sometimes. We see them and they're trusting God. So they are an inspiration in our life. And then he said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't believe people when they say, well, Jesus did this way back then, but now he's doing this. If what, he, if what they're saying He's doing now goes against what He did before, that's not the Word of God. Don't believe them. That's a wrong doctrine. Verse 8 right here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then verse 9 it said, Don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. That's going right off of verse 8. It says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't be worried when these people bring all these new, strange doctrines. You have everything you need in God's Word. You take that, there's enough to be occupied with throughout your life on earth 
in the pages of the Bible. Then it says, for it's good that the heart be established by grace. Don't go back into works thinking, well, if I do this, God's going to really be happy with me. And we already covered that. You can't be perfect. You've already sinned in life. Go for the grace. Go for the mercy of God. Give up on trying to make yourself righteous enough before God and instead trust in Him to make you righteous through the atoning blood of His Mashiach, the Messiah, Jesus the Lord. For it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods that have not profited those who are occupied by them. Then we'll wrap up real quickly here. Verse 10 says, For we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. They can't go in that place. They haven't believed. Their sins are not forgiven. There's been no atonement for their sins, so they cannot enter the holy place. But the atoning blood of the Lamb of God on the doorpost of our house, our hearts, assures us that God will pass over us by judgment and He bids us to come into the tabernacle and fellowship and commune with Him. And He's talking about in verse 11, the, uh, what we talked about before, the sacrifice of animals. We talked about it many times in the book of Hebrews in our study through this book. It says, For the bodies of these animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. The bodies don't profit. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It's saying, it's saying that he was crucified outside the camp. Crucified. And when they were, did this to someone outside the camp, they were saying, that person is not one of us. That person is not holy and a righteous person. They thought he had sinned, so they crucified him outside the gate. Therefore, it says in verse 13, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. You see, it's saying that, look, if they persecuted him, they're going to persecute you. If they persecuted our master, they're going to persecute us. The servant is not greater than his master. If they did these things and rejected him, they're going to reject you. But here's the thing. God left you here after saving you for a reason. You are to go forth and plant the seeds of the gospel to share the good news. Yes, some will reject. Yes, some will persecute you. But yes, many will come to know the Lord and one day be with us forever in the kingdom of heaven. If you look forward and you see that joy at that time, then it makes it all worthwhile. So go with him outside the camp. Don't worry about being accepted by other people. Go outside the mainstream. Do what God wants you to do. Don't even think about what man wants you to do. You're responsible to God alone. Therefore, let us go forth to him, it says, outside the camp in verse 13, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city. For in this world, we don't have a city that we continue to live in forever. But we seek one to come. Verse 15, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. We don't have to offer an atonement for sin. We're here to offer the sacrifice of praise for what he has done, 
because we couldn't do it. We couldn't keep the law all the time and we had sin and needed forgiveness and He came and gave us that forgiveness. So let's offer the sacrifice of prayer and praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. In other words, it's not just a whole big list of things that you have to do now to please God. Love Him, love one another. All the law comes down to those two things. And He's saying, let us just praise Him for what He's done. We don't have to earn our ticket to heaven. He's given it to us freely by the sacrifice of His Son. And when He sees the blood of the blemish-free Son of God, the Lamb of God, on the doorposts of our heart, He'll pass over us in judgment. And when you realize just exactly what you've been saved from, that just makes a smile on your face, doesn't it? That just makes it to where you're thinking, oh, wow, God, you are so good. And just say it right out loud. Give the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share. It still says to do good and to share in verse 16. For, which sac for with such sacrifices, God's well pleased. Here's the deal. You're doing those things because they please God and they honor God. But you're not doing them to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. That's why he says in verse 16. But don't forget to do good and to share. For with, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Then it goes on, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. In other words, honor your pastors. Honor the teachers, the people who work with you, who share with you, who go out for that coffee with you and, and go through a little Bible study with you. Those people who call you up on the phone and spend time just to, to see how you're doing and to coach you along in your studies through the Word of God. Honor those people. Obey them who rule over you and be submissive because they're not doing it for their own good. They're watching out for your souls because they realize that they've got to give an account before God. That's why it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy, it continues in verse 17. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. Saying, oy vey, that guy is just so hard to talk to. Every time I just, it's just so hard to meet with him and go through the Bible with him. He's got all of these things. He's always saying, well, I can't be the way it is because this and this and this. And they're talking about every subject that comes up into their mind instead of focusing on what it is that God's got for them that day. They do this for you, the people who help you out. Do it with joy and not with grief. Make it so that they enjoy their time, that they don't dread their time with you, you see. That's what I'm saying. Because that would be unprofitable for you. In verse 18, pray for us that we are confident, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. So the writer of the book of Hebrews, verse 18 and 19, is really saying, pray for us. We need prayer. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you right now. Pray for me, too, by, by the way. Pray for us, and I'll be praying for you, and we do pray for you. And that's what God's designed for us to do because prayer works. Prayer changes things. I love those little signs that have... Those three words, prayer changes things. 
It says, pray for us. We're confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. Right there it tells you the writer of Hebrews is not a perfect person. They recognize that they're trying to do their best. He says, pray for us, for we're confident that we have a good conscience. I don't remember doing these things wrong, you know, but in all things we desire to live honorably, but he's leaving it open saying that there might have been something we missed. Oh, no. Verse 19, but I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. In other words, pray for us that I might come to you sooner. I want to see you. I want to see how you're doing. I want to spend some time with you. I miss you. I love you all. And wow, that's my prayer for you too. Right now in Israel, I miss you all. I love you all. Pray for us that we may be restored to you the sooner. And then finally, verse 20. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Abrita Chadashah, the new covenant, remember from Jeremiah we spoke of. And verse 21, it says, May the shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And it's okay if you're saying, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. You say, well, I thought only God gets the glory. Yes, that's correct. And now you understand, Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God sent by the Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Jesus said to the disciples, He says, have I been with you so long, Philip? that you have not known me. He said, I and the Father am one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he says, Amen to these things. And then finally he closes out and he says, Now I appeal to you, brothers, bear with the word of exhortation in verse 30, uh, 22. For I have written to you in a few words. Yeah, a few words. It's not like a text message where you got, what, 140 characters or something on, you know, on uh, Twitter or something like He's written to you in a few words. Well, he's saying it's a few, several thousand words, but back then it could have been a few words. You couldn't just text someone or send an email. You sent this courier with this parchment, and it took a long, long time. It wasn't Federal Express or UPS or DHL or anything like that. So you didn't do this many times. And so you wrote everything that you needed to talk about in one big long letter. But to the writer of the book of Hebrews, he says, I've written to you in a few words. And then he goes on in verse 23, know that our brother Timothy has been set free. He wanted to share that joyous occasion with them. Our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. I'm going to get him. We're going to come to see you. Then he ends, greet all those who rule over you. Thinking about the pastors, those who care for your souls, those who are leading you in discipleship, those who are patiently spending time with you, and one day you're going to be in their shoes doing exactly what they're doing because that's how the kingdom of God grows. He says, greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And that's how he ends it. So what are you going to do with the message that you've learned about in the book of Hebrews? Are you going to just walk away 
being that same tired and hopeless person you were before God shined his light in your direction? Or will you allow his spirit to change your life, to give you a new life, to give you a new heart, to give you a new hope, everlasting life, and a peace that the world could never, ever take away? What will you do with this message from God that we read about in the book of Hebrews? It's a message from your Creator. The choice is yours. Will today just be another meaningless day as you walk through your years on earth going from hopelessness to despair? Having sometimes of joy but never permanent peace? Or will today be the day that everything changes? The day that you begin to live the life that God has designed for you and experience the promises He's made for you. What will you do? Not tomorrow. What will you do today? What will you do with what God has shown your heart today? What will you do with His offer of everlasting life in heaven? What will you do? Why don't you give your life to Him right now? If you call out to Him, He's going to hear that cry. And He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness. And He'll shine His light on your heart. And you'll be given newness of life. He'll change you into a new person. He'll throw all that bad history away. And you'll be completely new, given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. That's guaranteed by His promise, the promise of God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. Not tomorrow, but today. Settle it today. Do this and watch the peace that comes. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. You could pray something like this. Just repeat after me. Say, God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I do believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. A seed's been planted deep down in your heart. Over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful things and changes that God is making in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him every day in His Word and talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do wonderful things in your life. You just wait and see. 